You are now listening to the June 9th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, our topics are Christianese 101, The Sex Spiral, and Grace Upon Grace, and begin our program with Christianese 101. My name is Grace, and I am your host for the Christianese 101 program. There is a metaphor from Jesus about weeds. He uses it in a parable found in Matthew chapter 13, beginning with verse 24. For those of you that grew up in the city, where weeds are not as common as living in more rural areas, we will have a brief discussion about weeds so we can better understand the metaphor that Jesus used in his teaching. Before the Israelites entered the Promised Land, God described that land in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 7 through 9. In verse 8, He mentions a land with wheat and barley. When we think about this verse, it indicates that the people of Israel will continue to farm in the Promised Land and continue to give their grain offerings to God, as described in Leviticus chapter 2. So, because of the farming knowledge they already had, When Jesus told them the parable of the tars or weeds, they would have easily understood it. On farms, weeds commonly grow in barley or wheat fields. The appearance of weeds before harvesting is very similar to that of barley and wheat, and it is hard to distinguish between the two with the naked eye. Also, weeds can grow toxic parasitic bacteria. If we ingest this bacterium, we can displace symptoms such as nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and or dizziness. Because it has a bitter taste, when it is mixed with wheat, it can tarnish the taste of the flour. Also, if the livestock eat the wheat mixed with weeds, it can lead to death. Did you know that weeds can cause this much damage? As I mentioned before, weeds grow when farming barley and wheat. Until it becomes ripe and due to their similar appearance, Farmers often accidentally pull out the wheat and barley instead of the weeds. Now I understand why Jesus told us to wait until the harvest. Even if they look similar, they can easily be distinguished at the time of the harvest. At the top of the stem, wheat consists of two or four rows of fruits at the tip. Barley has six rows of fruits. However, weeds grow up to 6 to 12 centimeters with flat fruits growing in zigzag patterns. Not only that, due to the tall height of the wheat, they are harvested first, then the shorter weeds are left till the end and burned. After understanding these facts, the parable of the weeds is much easier to understand. There is a similar word to weed in the Bible. Do you know what it is? That's right, it's chaff. Chaff is a thin casing around the grain. In the fields, crops and weeds are separated. The harvested crops are then separated into grains and chaff. The harvested crops are taken to the threshing floor to filter out the chaff. Since the chaff are light coverings on the grain, they fly away in the wind. So the crops are spread widely into the threshing room and winnowed, which is to throw the grain up in the air and letting the wind blow the unwanted parts away, so that the grains fall to the ground and the chaffs are gathered in one area. The useless chaff is also burned, 
Jesus compared the farming techniques in Israel with Judgment Day. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 12, John the Baptist told the Pharisees and the Sadducees who had come to be baptized that the one was coming with his winnowing fork in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 40, Jesus explained, So just as the tares, another word for weeds, are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. Weeds and chaff look similar to crops and grains, however, they are easily divided during the harvest. How can you tell? It is by their fruits. Whether you are the grain or not, you will be able to distinguish that fruit for yourself. I will end with hope that you will be the grain and not the weeds or chaff. And I look forward to speaking with you again. God bless you and goodbye.
Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter. Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor, Dustin Daniels. Have you ever noticed that when we deal with the subject of pornography, there always seems to be an excuse? If you're the spouse of someone entangled with porn, you know exactly what I'm talking about. He always has an answer, doesn't he? And if you're in the recovery side of porn, today's podcast will continue to show you the great links that we as addicts will go to to cover up our sin. Many people come and they see me and they tell me that they've repented from their sin of looking at pornography, but yet the temptation is still there. It doesn't seem to go away. And, uh, you know, my first response to that is, of course, the temptation is still there. If it were to go away, then we wouldn't need God. It's a false belief structure we have. We also tend to believe that repentance is a one and done type behavior that we believe that once we repent from a specific sin, that we don't need to do it again. This is also a false belief. For us to move towards restoration, away from isolation, we must think of repenting and not repented. It's a continual act of submission, sometimes on a daily and hourly basis. Today, we continue our conversation on what's called trigger number nine, justification. This is all inside the sex spiral. This is part two of three that comes from the larger teaching series, The Sex Spiral Forgiven and Free from Pornography. And in this trigger, uh, what we learn that we're justifying what we just did. In other words, I'm trying to convince you uh, that it's okay, that my acting out in sin is perfectly normal, that looking at pornography somehow is a good idea. So in today's podcast, we're going to discuss three things. Number one, the difference between justification and rationalization. Number two, the three things that we do when we justify our behavior. And number three, how we can actually choose to stop justifying our behavior. So let's get started with today's lesson. This is titled, Why Do We Always Have an Excuse? We always have an excuse, don't we? We always have an absurd answer. And it really is absurd. Like when you are literally at that rationalization trigger number five, when you find yourself starting to talk yourself into doing something, if you would call your partner and go, this is the excuse that I'm giving myself right now. This is why I'm going to talk myself. And you would go, you're a fool. And we need someone to call us a fool at that moment, because if we don't, if we don't have somebody to shock us out of our complacency, we're just going to continue to do what we've always done, right? And that shows how deep the stuff runs. 
how powerful it is. It depends on what the meaning of the word is is. If the if he if is means is and never has been, well, but see that kind of answer, it just makes total sense to us because we're caught in this spiral. So rationalization is before we sin, right? It's to think about or describe something that makes it seem proper. We're talking ourselves into this. I basically now have to convince you of my thinking. Justification, on the other hand, what we're talking about tonight is the acceptable reason for doing something. And I believe that's your first blank. Acceptable reason. So justification, an acceptable reason for doing something, something that justifies an action. So because you did this and this situation happened, see, I had to do it. I had to do it because you said this to me or this person treated me this way and I'm the victim and this is what I always do. It depends on what your shame story is. So why do we always have an excuse? Why do you think we always have to have an answer when we're at this trigger? You heard President Clinton say it twice. He said, I need to protect myself and I need to protect my family. It's about self-protection. Because if I don't protect myself, who's going to protect me? It goes back to Genesis 3. Why did Adam hide? He was trying to protect himself. Why was he trying to protect himself? Because he sinned against God. And under God, he was completely and fully protected. But now that he rebelled against him, he has to protect himself because God's, his hand of protection is now off of him. From the very beginning of humanity, things have not changed much, have they? We're still dodging, we're still hiding, we're still justifying, we're still blaming. All of us in here are blaming her, right? Whoever her is. But we're trying to protect ourselves in a sinful way. It's because if we really wanted to protect us and our family, then we would, take, we would move forward into community, we would move towards restitution, trying to make the relationship right. We would move towards confession. We would try to make things right, but what we're trying to do is, I'm going to show you that I'm right. I'm going to prove to you that, I, that this is okay for me to do. And ultimately, all, all we're doing is we just continue to rebel. So justification on your worksheet is our attempt at self-protection and not facing the reality of what we've done. Ultimately, you guys, we can think about this as we're continuing our fantasy world into our, our sexual fantasy world into our fantasy world of our life. Because this is still fantasy. We're, we're still thinking about something that's not reality. So our sexual fantasies are fantasies. They're not reality. And then when we get caught in this, I'm going to try to prove to you that this is right. But it's not. It's like a train wreck because your life is starting to hit reality at this point. And then when someone, gives you a, when someone looks you in the eye and gives you a dose of reality, what happens to you? You get mad, right? Angry. We get angry. How dare you talk to me that way? What are you talking about? You're completely sideways. You're completely sideways with your family, with your wife, with God. The truth hurts. 
That's something the Lord showed me today. The truth is always the truth. It may be delivered wrong, like we may deliver a piece of truth wrong to where it's offensive, but it's still the truth. So when you justify your behavior, number one, you're sorry and angry that you got caught. You're sorry and or angry for the situation. And number three, but you refuse to own the consequences of your sinful actions. Ownership looks like this. Going to the people that you've sinned against and doing whatever it takes to fix that relationship. Whatever it takes. Some form of restitution. No matter the cost to me, right? That's owning the thing. It's not like saying, oh, I'm sorry. I'll try harder next time. Turn your Bibles to James chapter 3, verse 1. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Um... This is one of my favorite books personally because it has so much practical theology in it. Um, Pastor Tom Schrader, if you know him, he says this is blue jean theology. You just kind of put it on and it, it's real world application. He writes, Dear brothers and sisters, Not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Indeed, we all make many mistakes. For if we could control our tongues, we would be perfect and could also control ourselves in every single way. So notice as we go through this piece of scripture how much he talks about our words and our tongues. And what he's saying there in verse 2 is, unless we stop making excuses for our sin... We're going to continue to be a slave to it. Does that make sense? That the excuses in our lives, they just have to stop. Verse 3, we can make a large horse go wherever we want by a means of a small bit in its mouth. And a small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the captain chooses to go. And even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. Was that a grand speech by President Clinton that I just read to you? It was a pretty grand speech. I'm sure he had several speech writers write it for him. Do you guys believe it? Did you believe a word that he said? What about Tiger? Remember Tiger Woods? You remember the, the, the I'm sorry speech that he gave after his fallout several years ago? He showed up behind a podium in a three-piece suit and just put his head down and just read. And he was no more sorry than a man on the moon. He was like a robot. Uh, At the end of verse 5 here, James writes, But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire. You guys experience that? You say something comes out of your mouth before you crank down your filter a little bit, and you go, Oh, I wish I wouldn't have said that. I wish my tone would have been a little bit better. Verse 6, And among all the parts of the body, the tongue is a flame of fire. It's a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire, for it is set on fire by hell itself. So what's James saying here? I had a conversation with a wife yesterday or the day before. She's getting ready to get married. Her fiancé, heavily involved in pornography, And for the past two and a half years, he's just completely lied about it. And she said, it's one thing to do what he's done, but 
Dustin, I've asked him over and over and over, you know, is this a problem? No, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. He lied. So it's not just the, the acting out in sin, but to her, the lie, she actually said that the lying is more painful to me now than the actual act of, of whatever he did. And that's what James is saying is that this is going to set your whole life on fire. That's when we talk about lamp sobriety, L-A-M-P. Lying, it's not a coincidence that it's number one. Because that's the easiest thing for us to do, right? We can lie to our accountability partner. We can lie to ourselves. We're good at that, right? Did President Clinton, did his sin set his life on fire? How about you guys? whose life is on fire right now. Did you hear that? This guy's wife cared more about the lying than her husband's porn use. Could it be the same with, with your own wife, guys? Well, my encouragement to you is to ask her and to start this discussion. Your life does not have to stay on fire. Communication is the way to extinguish this blaze, I promise you. And I would encourage you that you do that before this whole thing becomes this inferno and burns away everything that you've ever known like it did mine. I mentioned being lamp sober in the teaching, L-A-M-P. It's an acronym for lying, adultery, that could be physical or emotional. The M is masturbation and the P is pornography, lamp sober. So in the recovery world, if someone asks if you're lamp sober, that's what that means. So let me ask you a question. How long have you been lamp sober? If you find yourself in the spiral over and over and over again, I want you to go to the website, DustinDanielsRadio.com. Send me an email and tell me what I can do to help. Now, if you're a spouse and don't know what to do uh, because of your husband's pornography, his addiction, his behavior, his anger... My encouragement to you is to do the same. Jump on the website, send me an email, ask your questions, and I can address them on this podcast because your questions are not unique to you. We tend to think that, but that's not the case. So when you write in, I'll be responding to thousands of people in 80 countries who are listening, and they want to know and learn just like you do. One thing that you can do right now to to take a step to be lamp sober is to make that decision to put internet filtering software on your computer. Well, thank you so much for listening to God, Sex, and You. I'm Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, I want to invite you to our weekly community group. It's a grace group. It's for men and women, husbands and wives. It doesn't matter if you're you're, uh, together or separated, sleeping on the couch. Single, divorced, it doesn't matter. Everybody is welcome. We love you. And I just want to invite you to listen to God with us every Tuesday at 7 p.m. at Northern Hills Community Church. We are in Building A, Room 301. You can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. Once again, email me your comments and your questions at DustinDanielsRadio.com. 1 Corinthians 4.20 reads, The kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk. It's living in God's power. And that power, that life-giving power, is in the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. 
must be more than this All breath of God come breathe within
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. Today's topic is The Idolatry of Comfort and the Glory of Christ based on Philippians chapter 1 verses 12 through 30. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. I want to invite you to open with me to Philippians chapter 1, the New Testament. Feel free to use your table of contents in the Bible if you need to. Philippians chapter 1, and while you're turning there, I want to welcome those of you in other places, in Prince William and Montgomery County and Loudoun and the Wharf and different microsites. Good to be together across Washington around the word. The plan this morning was to dive back into our 12 traits of a biblical church series after Easter last week. And Lord willing, we'll continue that series next week. But as I was praying this week, I was in the middle of preparing something different and I just had a strong sense that we needed to go in a a different direction today, particularly in light of uh, a couple people who are in worship with us. So for those of you who are joining with us from other locations, I want to fill you in on something we just heard from a brother named Gilbert Hovsepian. So Gilbert's dad, name is Hike, planted a church in Iran back in 1964 and in the days to come became the leader of a large network of churches there. Gilbert's dad was known for proclaiming Christ in the middle of increasing persecution, defending Christians when they were persecuted. Back in 1993, Gilbert's dad received news about an execution order that had been put out. Iranian pastor who had been a convert from Islam had been in prison for about 10 years. And Gilbert's dad started to work tirelessly to bring international attention to that pastor's plight. And eventually that pastor was released. But three days after that pastor was released, Gilbert's dad disappeared. Gilbert was 17 at the time, and two weeks later, Gilbert's family found his dad's body stabbed 26 times in the chest. And in the days to come, several other Iranian believers disappeared, suddenly were murdered including that same pastor that Gilbert's dad had, had fought to defend. So Gilbert is here with us at Tyson's today because he led worship today at a, yesterday at a conference put on by Voice of the Martyrs that we held here. A variety of people spoke at that conference, including Gracia Burnham, whose husband was martyred beside her years ago in the Philippines where they were serving as missionaries. So Gracia is with us in worship today as well. As I was thinking about Gilbert and Gracia, praying about what God wants to say to us today, I couldn't help but to think that we needed to pause in the middle of what we had planned and hear a word that I believe we desperately need to hear in our lives and in our families and in this church. So I've titled this sermon, The Idolatry of Comfort and the Glory of Christ. So let's just put everything on the table. 
We live in a culture that is deeply committed to comfort, health, and safety, which is not surprising. Like, if this life is all there is, then make it as comfortable, as long, and as pleasure-filled as possible. Get more and better, nicer, newer possessions. Build bigger barns, larger savings accounts and 401ks to protect you just in case. Avoid risk. Maximize reward. Live your best life now. Like This is success according to our culture. What's sobering, though, is the way this perspective has penetrated the people of God. You and me and our lives and our families and church. I was talking this last week with a professor at a respected Christian university. He told me how the trustees of that school have forbidden professors from taking students on mission trips overseas to Muslim countries because there's too much risk involved. I said, do they not want students to obey the Great Commission? And he said, oh, the trustees aren't the biggest barrier, is the parents. He said, even if trustees allowed trips to Muslim countries, parents of Christian students won't let them go because they think it's too dangerous. Parents won't go, and they're sure not letting their kids go. Parents in this room, if that is our perspective, then we may call ourselves Christians, but we are not following Christ. We need a totally different perspective than our culture in the church. What if in these ways, the worldview of our culture is completely wrong? What if this life is not all there is? What if God never intended this to be our best life now? And what if there is something that is infinitely more important in your life and your family than comfort, health, and safety. And what if missing this actually means missing the whole point of your life? Listen to the word of God. This is not my words. Paul writes these words inspired by the Holy Spirit from prison. So he's in prison for proclaiming the gospel when he says, verse 12, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. 
Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. In that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Do you hear what the word of God is saying? For the Christian, for every true follower of Christ, Christ is your life. Like plain and simple, Christ is your life. This is what we saw last week in John 20. We asked the question, is Christ your life? That's the question we asked on Easter. So when you truly believe in Christ, then you have life in his name. That's exactly what Paul's saying here, explicitly in verse 21, for me to live is Christ. Jesus is my life. He's my life. And it's all over what we just read. Verse 13, he says, my imprisonment is for who? It's for Christ. So my imprisonment's for, then in verse 15 through 18, he starts talking about people who are preaching Christ for different motives. And he says, what's most important, verse 18, is that Christ is proclaimed. That's what makes me joyful. That's what brings life to me. As long as Christ is proclaimed, I rejoice. Verse 20, I just want Christ to be honored in my body, regardless of whether I live or die. I just want Christ to be glorified. Verse 23, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That language, it's like when I'm out of town on a long trip and I, I'm sending a text to Heather saying, I miss you so much. I can't wait to be back home with you and the kids, away from wherever I am, home with you. That's what Paul's saying. He's like, that's the way I feel about Christ. I just want to be with him. Like, I can't wait to be out of here with him. But for now, Paul says, I trust that Christ has me here 
for your sake, so that, verse 26, you might glory in Christ. In other words, so that you might know Christ as your life. And then he keeps going. So go over to chapter 3 here in Philippians. Now, keep in mind, we're jumping over Philippians 2 here, where Paul talks about Jesus and how great and glorious he is, how he is God in the flesh, how in love he came to us, took the very nature of a servant, made himself nothing, became obedient to the point of dying on a cross for our sins. Then he rose from the dead. Now he's exalted as Lord over all. So he gives this glorious picture of Jesus. And then he writes, so listen to the language. In chapter three, Paul's talking about a group of people called Judaizers. And he's calling them out for how they were defining success, even success before God. And he basically says, based on all they had, and he says, nobody can compete with me when it comes to success in this world. Pick up midway through verse four, where Paul starts listing off the highlights of his resume. He says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So here's the highlights. I'll put them up here on the screen. He says, one, look at my family heritage. Verse five, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So Paul's family, Jewish roots were thick. Circumcised, born not just to the people of Israel, but the tribe of Benjamin. You go back to the Old Testament. This is the tribe that gave the nation of Israel its first king. What was the first king's name? Saul, after whom Paul was named. If you want Hebrew family heritage, can't beat Paul. Then second, social status. Keep going here. The tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, basically saying upper echelon in Jewish life. High class at the pinnacle of Jewish social structure. Then he says, add to family heritage, biblical and social status, biblical knowledge, end of verse five, as to the law of Pharisee. Now we have to be careful here because many people who read through the Bible, when we think of Pharisees, we often think of them as hypocrites because Jesus was continually calling them out. That's not necessarily how they were viewed in that day. Pharisees were known for their love for the law, their strict interpretation of their zealous obedience to it. They knew the law backwards and forwards and they followed it. Paul's saying, I knew the word. And then he backed it up with religious activity. Here's another mark on his resume. Paul wasn't just mildly religious. He was zealous in his religion. Verse six, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He was on a mission. And then list on the re- one more item on the resume. He had a moral lifestyle. As to righteousness under the law, blameless, he said. You want to see somebody who follows all the rules, who keeps all the law? Nobody can compare with Paul. Now, I want you to look at that resume with me and think about all these things. What do all of them have in common? Think about it with me. Family heritage, social status, biblical knowledge, religious activity, and a moral lifestyle. What do all those things have in common? They're all good things, right? Family heritage, that's not bad. That's good. Social status, not necessarily bad by any means. Biblical knowledge, not bad. Religious activity, a moral lifestyle. These are all great things. But listen to what Paul says next in verse 7. He says, but whatever gain I had, in other words, all these good things in the world, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. It's all loss. 
And just in case we didn't hear him this first time, he says it again. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And then he says it a third time. Get the point. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. We got to feel the weight of the statement Paul just made. So that word for rubbish in the original language of the New Testament is literally dung. You likely can think of other words that would be inappropriate to use right now. And that's what Paul just said. He just took all the good things, all the valuable things of his life in this world, and he just called them all rubbish compared to knowing Christ. He says, I gladly lose, lost, lose all those things just to know Christ. That's what he says in verse 10, that I may know him. Christ is my life. Picture it. It's like Paul takes a piece of paper. He puts two columns and on one side, he lists all the good things this world has to offer. And then above that list, he writes one word, loss. And then in the other column, he writes one word, Christ. And on top of that column, he writes gain. He really believes that the best things of this world are like dung in comparison to Christ. That is a very different way to think. That is a very different way to live. That is a radically different Christianity than the one that is so often practiced in our culture and in churches like ours. And this is so important. This is the danger. I can't emphasize this enough because you can have all of these things in this world. A good family life, good social status, nice house, nice car, nice job, nice vacations. You can have biblical knowledge and religious activity on top of that. And you can have a good, lead a good, moral, decent, upstanding life. You can have all those things and still not have Christ. That's why I continually ask, like, not do you go to church? Have you prayed a prayer? What kind of car do you drive? How successful are you in your business? How moral a life are you living? How much biblical knowledge do you have? Get through the rubbish. Get through the dung. Do you know Christ? Is Christ your life such that you would say, ask, is, this, is Jesus your life such that you would say all the best things in your life, from family to finances to possessions to pleasures to comfort, safety, health, wealth, success, you would say none of these things, all of these things together don't compare to the treasure I have in Christ. Isn't this the testimony of men and women throughout history? God help us. God make us like Job. If God takes it all away, my land, my home, my possessions, my health, my children. If he takes it all away, just like that, and everyone, even my own wife is cursing me, I will still have my joy and my hope and my life because my Redeemer lives. God, make us like Hannah amidst her longing for a child. She cries, 1 Samuel 2, 6, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he raises up. I trust in him. God, make us like Moses. Hebrews 11, 
24 through 26, by faith Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a short time. He regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than all the treasures of Egypt. Because he was looking ahead to his reward. God, kind of make us like men and women throughout Christian history. Is this not Gilbert's dad in Iran saying, I'm going to protect the body of Christ and I'm going to proclaim the gospel of Christ no matter what. Because Christ is my life, even if that means I will never see my family that I love again. At least, not in this world. This is huge. Follow this. This is such a different way to think. Such a different way to live. And this affects everything. This affects the way you view possessions in this world. You realize they're rubbish. This affects the way you view so many pursuits in this world. They're rubbish. And so many pleasures that this world puts in front of you. They're all rubbish compared to knowing and gaining and treasuring loving Christ. He's your life. So is it true? Is Jesus your life like that? And then follow this. When Jesus is your life, don't miss what happens. When Christ is your life, then suffering is a gift. If what we've been talking about so far has been crazy in this world, we are totally off the reservation now. Suffering, a gift. Go back to Philippians chapter one. Look at verse 29. This is a weird verse. It's very strange. Follow this, Paul says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. What does that mean? It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should believe in him. Okay, that makes sense. Like it's a gift to believe in Christ, to receive salvation in Christ, to believe the gospel, the good news that God loves us enough to send Jesus to die for our sins. Absolutely, that's a gift. It's a gift to believe in Christ. That's not all Paul's saying here. Paul's saying it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him. Oh, so there's another gift here. Great. What's the other gift? That you should also suffer for him. What kind of gift is that? Have you ever been given a gift you didn't want? Like I didn't ask for, ask for this. Suffering has been granted, given to you. Imagine that invitation. Become a Christian and get a gift. What's the gift? Suffering. Who's walking forward now? And how in the world do you see suffering as a gift? I am so glad you asked. Here's how. Think about what suffering is. Suffering, simplified, is when things that we want things that we love, things that we desire, enjoy, oftentimes really good things, are taken away from us. People, 
family, friends, when we lose somebody we love, we suffer. Divorce. When a spouse no longer loves, we suffer. When we lose health, when we're struck with disease or pain, we suffer. And health is taken away. Financial crisis, when we lose money, we lose a job, we suffer. When we lose all these things we've been talking about, comfort, health, safety, and on and on and on and on. When these oftentimes good things are taken away from us, sometimes by circumstances in our control, many times by circumstances out of our control. Regardless, when they're taken away from us, we suffer. But go back to what we talked about earlier. When you have already taken all the best things this world has to offer, and you've put them in a column over here under loss, and you've put Christ in a column under gain, then when one or more of these things are taken from you, it's not easy. I want to be clear. I'm not saying the Bible's not saying suffering is easy. Losing good, great things in this world, people we love, our health, on and on and on. It's not easy. The pain is real. The tears are many. But when Christ is your life and one or more of these things are taken away from you, then in the end, suffering, the taking away of these things only drives you more to who? To Christ. And suffering becomes a gift when treasuring Christ above all is your goal. Suffering becomes a gift when treasuring Christ above everything is your goal. I was talking with Gilbert before this gathering. He was telling me about when he was in prison for his faith, how he had nowhere else to turn, how prison made him a man of prayer, how prison made him a man of the word, how prison made him a man of faith. Prison caused him to cling to Christ like he'd never clinged to Christ before. Do you see that gift? You realize that? You realize the dangerous place to be is not in prison, but in comfort and safety. Because imprisonment, danger for your faith, causes you to cling to Christ when comfort, safety, oftentimes causes you to cling to this world. That's the dangerous place to be. That doesn't mean, nowhere in Scripture do we see exhortations to pursue suffering, to pursue persecution, to pursue even dying for our faith. That's not martyrdom. That's just plaindom. We don't do that. We don't pursue. But when we pursue Christ in a world of sin and suffering, then we will experience sin and suffering. And the more that suffering is taken away from our lives, the more we'll be drawn to Christ. And do you realize, so this is so big, do you realize what this treasuring Christ above all means then for your life? Don't miss this. Because the Bible is showing us here a rock-solid foundation for security and joy and peace and hope and life in this world, in this turbulent world, this world of suffering. So follow this. When you're treasuring Christ over and above everything in this world, then there is nothing this world can do to you to rob you of your joy and your hope and your peace and your life because you have all these things in Christ and nothing can ever take that away from you. 
Cancer can't take that away from you. Nothing, nothing. That's why Paul says prison. Like my freedom being taken away, this is not easy, but it's good. Why? Because Christ is being magnified. And not just in Paul's life. So follow this. It's not just about Paul. Not just about you. It's not just about me. Because in the providence of God, suffering leads to the spread of the gospel to others. Suffering leads not just you and me to treasure Christ more, but suffering leads others to see Christ as the treasure he is. Listen to Paul. He's saying, here I am in prison. My freedom is gone. But look what's happening as a result. The whole imperial guard is hearing about Christ. Christ is being preached all over the place. Then he says, point blank, I want to be gone. Like, I don't want to be here. Suffering in prison, I don't want to be here anymore. I desire to depart and be with Christ. That would be better by far. Not even close for Paul. Uh, No, I want to be with him. Then he says, I so want you to know the treasure that's found in Christ. So I'm glad to stay here toward that end, that you might know him, that you might know how good he is. Don't miss, don't miss the connection here between suffering and the spread of the gospel. Think about it. If you and I profess faith in Christ and everything always goes well for us, then the world will not take notice of that. The world will see us just like everybody else. What, you have all the comforts, all the stuff of this world like everybody else? You tack on Jesus on Sundays? Big deal. Nice for you. But here's where things will take a decidedly different turn. When you lose some of the best, some of the most valuable, the most precious gifts in this world, and in the middle of suffering, you have joy and peace and hope because Christ is your life, then the world will take notice of that. When that child is born with special needs that totally changes the course of your life and family, and like many families across this church, you're exhausted every single day caring for those needs, yet in the middle of your weakness, you say, the strength of Christ is sufficient for me. The world will take notice of that. When that cancer is killing your blood cells and you're walking through indescribable pain and in the midst of that pain, it's not that the pain isn't real, it is real, yet in the midst of that pain, you testify Christ alone is my peace. The world will take notice of that. When you get that diagnosis that you only have months to live and then you live those months with hope and not despair because Christ is your life, then the world takes notice of that. When you lose that person you love and you're dependent on and you're grieving like you've never grieved before, but in the middle of that grief, you say, I trust in Christ. He's my king and I know he will take care of me. The world takes notice of that. I was talking with a brother this last week with liver cancer. He desperately needs a transplant. He just found out he doesn't qualify for one. Yet he told me, he said, I'm sending out prayer updates to all kinds of people every week and I'm preaching the gospel on every single one of them. And he said, literally like Paul, these were his words, I just want Christ to be glorified whether I live or I die. That's a different way to live. And that's a different way to die. This is huge. Because when Christ is your life, follow this, then not only is suffering a gift, but when Christ is your life, then dying is 
gain. It's gain. Do you see this? To live is Christ and to die is okay too? No, it's gain. It's better. How's that possible? Put it all together. Think about what we've talked about. When everything, even the best things in this world are in one column under loss and Christ is in one column under gain, then when literally everything is taken from you, your family, your spouse, your children, your possessions, every one of them, your job, your health, your very breath, when it's all gone, then what will you have? You will have Christ and you will have him as you've never had him before. More fully and more finally than you've ever had him before. You will have Christ. So this is the question then for all of us. Do you love Christ? Asking this right where you're sitting. And don't just let this kind of be vague general. Just in your seat. Let this land on your heart. Do you love Christ so much that to lose everything in order to be with him would be gain for you? Do you love Christ so much that to lose everything in order to be with him would be, you'd say, gain. That is a radical way to live. And that is radical truth to believe. And as your pastor, I just, I just sense as I was preparing and now even preaching this, I just, this is totally against the grain of every message we hear in our culture, even oftentimes in our church culture. And as your pastor, I'm just urging you in this moment, I'm urging you to believe this truth, to believe that Christ is better, to believe that Christ is better than falling in love, than marrying and having healthy children, than seeing your children grow up, than making a name for yourself and finishing your career and having your dream home and dream vacations and dream retirement. Christ is better than all of those things. Christ is better than life. When you believe this, when you believe this, then you will live so different in this world. You won't run after all this world says you want and says you need. You'll see this world in its proper perspective. You'll see your life in its proper perspective. And then, oh, don't miss it. Then, then it will just make sense to sacrifice your possessions, to sacrifice your plans and your dreams and your comforts and your safety. It will just make sense to sacrifice your life to make the goodness and greatness and glory of Christ known in Washington and the goodness and greatness and glory of Christ known wherever God leads you in the world. Now it will make sense to take this gospel of Jesus Christ to the Middle East and to gladly send your kids there as well. For now, because of Christ, follow this, the worst thing that could happen to you or them, death, has actually become the best thing that could happen to you or them. In Christ, the worst thing that could happen to you, death, has become the best thing that will happen to you. Gain. Amen. 
<laughs> that transforms. That transforms how you, how you view comfort and health and safety in this world. It totally transforms everything when Christ is your life.
This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.